Yes. Good morning, everyone. Amazing. Uh, like Matt, Matt welcomed you. I will also welcome to Park Hill Church. My name is Evan. My wife, Sandy, uh, and I have the joy of leading this church alongside really a great team, uh, and, which you saw up here. I want to say again, Happy New Year. 2020 is upon us. Um, so we are starting a brand new series today in 1 Corinthians. Okay, we'll be walking through 1 Corinthians for most of 2020, like taking us probably all the way to Thanksgiving, believe it or not. Um, so we're inviting the Spirit of God all year long to use this ancient letter, which is what it is, to shape us in our third year as a church. So why 1 Corinthians? It's a good question. Glad you asked. 1 Corinthians is a letter written by the famous Apostle Paul to a church in the ancient city of Corinth, one of the great cities of the Roman world at the time. So as we read through 1 Corinthians, we're literally reading someone else's mail. And, and judging by the stuff in this mail, I doubt the original recipients of this letter would have loved the idea of us seeing it. I mean, uh, if this, yeah, so this letter, it reads like an expose of scandals and dysfunction and issues that were flying around this little church in the big city. We'll talk more about some of these issues next week, but suffice it to say for today, the problems facing the Corinthian Christians are eerily similar to the problems facing followers of Jesus today in San Diego. Like, so similar, it's kind of wild, actually. So in order to understand Paul's world and Corinthian culture, for the next couple weeks, we'll be sitting in the first nine verses of the letter, taking our time, and, and, and then we'll pick up in February, we'll pick up the pace for the rest of the letter, which would take us all the way to Advent. Does that sound good? Okay, so 1 Corinthians, if you could open your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 1, let's read. Paul, okay, stop there. We're going to get through this. Remember, we stop there because we are not Corinthians, right? We're modern Americans. Some of us in this room have been reading the Bible a certain way right here in California for like 40 years. And others of you maybe started reading the Bible for the first time this month, which is awesome. The original recipients of this letter, they knew exactly who Paul was. Most of them were alive before Paul was even a Christian. We, on the other hand, were not. Paul's been dead now for 1,900 years. So before we move past this first word, Paul, we have to ask a couple questions. Who was Paul? And why do Jesus followers today obey Paul? You ever thought about that? You ever wondered that? These are great questions, and Paul answers in his own words in the first line of Corinthians. So let's, let's look back down at the Bible and read the whole first sentence now. Paul, called to be an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God and our brother Sosthenes. Okay, great. But what does that actually mean? Like he says, he's called, and he's an apostle, and it's God's will. Still, why do we, in the 21st century, Christians in America, why do we submit to this Paul guy? I thought we follow Jesus. Who's Paul? And, and yeah, these are great questions. For starters, Paul is one of the most celebrated characters in the New Testament. He wrote 
at least 13 of the 27 New Testament books. He planted a bunch of the first churches. He was used by the Holy Spirit to really articulate the way of Jesus in a clear, accessible way for churches, the first churches, to, to, to understand the gospel and live it out together. Paul isn't only the second most influential Bible character next to Jesus, but he's possibly the second most influential human that's ever lived on the planet. To put it into perspective, okay, we have a hundred times more writings from Plutarch and Cicero, who are ancient historians that lived during Paul's day. We have a ton of writings from them, way more than we have from Paul. We only have like 90 pages of standard size print from Paul. Um, And yet, Paul's writings have inspired exponentially exponentially more ancient history and research and philosophy and commentary than all the other ancient writers combined, like by, by a million miles. It's almost impossible to overstate Paul's influence, you guys, especially on us in the West and how Western culture has developed for 1,900 years. Paul had a lot to do with this, you guys. But here's the deal. Paul wasn't always a Jesus guy. His story actually starts pretty dark. So... Here's what we're going to do today. We're going we're gonna to fly over part of Paul's life story in the book of Acts, just so that we can understand this author. Before we understand his writing, we're going to get into his mind and into his world. So turn to Acts chapter 7, and we're going to be in Acts for most of the morning, the rest of the morning. So most of what we know about Paul comes from Acts. The book of Acts... If you've ever read it, you know it's a story of the birth of the church and how it grew. The Jesus movement grew and formed little communities all over the world. And as the Jesus movement grows, the Jewish leaders try to kill it. And Acts 7 is the scene of the first Christian killing, the first Christian martyr. This guy named Stephen, he was a deacon, a servant, like many we have today. Stephen is on trial and he preaches this brilliant gospel sermon on trial for his life, in front of Israel's Jewish leaders. And one of those Jewish leaders, anti-Christian leaders, was this guy named Saul, we also know as Paul. Same guy, Saul was his Hebrew name, Paul was his Latin name. Okay, that's all Saul and Paul, it's the same guy. Um, and, and, and Saul, Paul, Paul wasn't just any Jewish leader. He was apparently the Jewish leader in charge of crushing the Christian rebel scum. So watch what happens right after they hear Stephen preach. Acts 7, 57. Stephen preaches in front of the Jews, and look what happens. At this, they covered their ears, and yelling at the top of their voices, they all rushed at him, dragged him out of the city, and began to stone him. Meanwhile, the witnesses laid their coats at the feet of a young man named Saul. And down at the bottom, look at verse, uh, eight, chapter 8, verse 1, at the very bottom. And Saul approved of their killing him. Nice guy. First Paul sighting. Um, He's this elite Jewish leader overseeing the systematic extermination of Christians. Uh, We learn from Paul's later speeches. Paul learned from the best of the best rabbis of his day. He learned from Gamaliel, who was the grandson of Hillel the Elder, who was responsible for creating the Mishnah and Talmud. If you know anything about Judaism today, they still read that stuff. And Paul was like next in line for greatness in in Judaism in that day. Um, Brilliant guy extremely anti-Christian, hostile. Let's keep reading. Acts 8, verse 1. On that day, a great persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem, and all except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. 
Godly men buried Stephen and mourned deeply for him, but Saul began to destroy the church. Going from house to house, he dragged off both men and women and put them in prison. I sense a pattern here. Paul's not a Jesus fan, right? He's destructive, murderous, religious bigot, hell-bent on wiping out the Jesus movement. Not the most likely candidate to write half the New Testament. So his rampage continues. Fast forward to Acts 9. Turn the page in your Bible, and it says, Meanwhile, Saul was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. He went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues in Damascus so that if he found any there who belonged to the way, that's what they called Christians back then. They didn't call them Christians until later. They were called the way, people of the way. Whether men or women, he would take people of the way as prisoners to Jerusalem. So you get the drift. Paul's this educated, elite, powerful Jew, and he's thinking he's right dead set that he's right and on a mission to get rid of all the Jesus people until he comes face to face with Jesus. Look what happens next. Verse 3 of Acts 9. As he neared Damascus on his Christian killing journey, Christian arresting journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground, heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? He doesn't know who he is, but he knows he's king, Lord, king, same word. I am Jesus whom you are persecuting, he replied. Paul is stunned. Jesus continues, verse six. Now get up, go to the city, and you'll be told what you must do. Verse eight, Saul got up from the ground, but when he opened his eyes, he could see nothing. Verse 9, for three days he was blind and didn't eat or drink anything. Okay, Saul's traumatized right now. Scene changes. Fast forward. He gets to Damascus. So now here's the Damascus scene. Um, in Damascus, there was a disciple named Ananias. Okay, this is a Christian. And the Lord called Ananias in a vision. Ananias. Uh, yes, Lord, he answered. The Lord told him, go to the house of Judas on Straight Street Straight Street still exists in Damascus, by the way. Uh, you can look it up and Google Images. It's pretty cool. Straight, go to Straight Street. Ask for a man from Tarsus named Saul, for he's praying. In a vision, he has seen a man named Ananias come and place his hands on him to restore his sight. So, so God's like, Jesus is like, Ananias, go to Saul. You've heard about him. He's, you know, the terrorist that comes and kills Christians. Go to, he's blind. He needs your healing. Go to him. And, and Ananias is like, Lord, which is just Christian for, no, I'm not. <laughs> Lord, I've heard many reports about this man, and he gives all his reasons why he shouldn't. Now pay attention to the Lord's response. The Lord's response. This is going to drive the rest of the sermon, and it's going to outline Paul's calling. We're going to learn a lot from this moment. The Lord, sent to Anna, the Lord said to Ananias, go, this man is my chosen instrument to proclaim my name to the who? Gentiles, and then who? Their kings, and then to the people of Israel. Okay, I want you to pay attention to those words, chosen instrument, called. And then the order, Gentiles, kings, Israel. This is a basic summary outline of God's calling on Paul's life, in my view. That's what God is doing here. 
Paul would go on to be known as the apostle to the Gentiles. And as the book of Acts unfolds, he stands before kings and ends up in Rome, where he probably stands before people we don't even know were in power. And then finally, his, his ethnicity was Jewish, and he ended up witnessing to people of his own Jewish ethnicity as well. So keep reading. Verse 17, Ananias obeys. He goes. He went to the house. And placing his hands on Saul, maybe he's trembling at this moment, and he's like, brother, brother Saul, like, like Let's be friends right now. Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road as you were coming here, he sent me so that you may see again and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Notice the connection between seeing and being filled with the Spirit. Verse 18, immediately something like scales fell from Saul's eyes. He could see again. He got up and was baptized. After taking some food, he regained his strength. So Paul, he receives his physical sight But more importantly, he receives spiritual sight. He can see who Jesus is in reality. He sees the world right now. He sees the world correctly. And from this moment on, we see two incredible things happen to Paul. And these are the two things that today are going to really drive us and, and bring us to baptism. We see two things happen to Paul. Number one, Paul is converted. He's converted. Bible interpreters traditionally call this story Paul's conversion story. How many of you guys have heard that word conversion? How many of you guys use that word in everyday life? It's not a word we often talk about, like, were you converted? Have you been converted recently or whatever? It's not a common word, and I actually don't, I'm not 100% fan of the word. Um, because here's why. We immediately have to clarify what it, what it means in our culture. Here in the West... Depending on our background, if you grew up in the church like me or around Christians, we might have different ideas about what it means to be converted. So it's, if possible, if possible, let's take a step back from terms like altar calls or praying the sinner's prayer or asking Jesus into your heart, which, which don't get me wrong, those things can be great terms. They're just foreign to the Bible. Um, when people become Christians... In the New Testament, it's less like asking Jesus into your heart and more like pledging allegiance to a king. Or in Paul's case, it's a 100% shift in loyalty, politically, spiritually, morally, personally, communally. It's a 100% shift in understanding who's in charge of everything, who the Messiah king is. Here's what I mean. Today, we think of Christianity and Judaism as two different like, major world religions, right? But in Paul's day, there was no such thing as Christianity or modern Judaism as we know it. In Paul's day, you had Yahweh who was moving in his people, Israel. And there were promises Yahweh made that one day he would come and save through a king called a Messiah. And, and at this moment in Paul's story, there was this sect, this group of Jews within Israel who called themselves people of the way, who believed Jesus of Nazareth from Galilee, a carpenter's son, was actually the king Yahweh promised. And that this carpenter's son's death, burial, and resurrection proved he was the king. So here comes Paul, right? An expert Bible expert, trained by the best Hebrew Bible scholars in Israel, and he's deeply committed to honoring Yahweh. He was killing Christians out of honor for Yahweh in his mind. Deeply committed, and 100% he was 
honoring the Lord. And, and, and these, these Christians, how dare they say, I'm supposed to submit to Yahweh's authority through the carpenter's son? No way. Until he encounters him face to face with Jesus, the risen Jesus of Galilee. And this Jesus verbally tells Paul, stop persecuting me. And in one moment, his entire worldview is flipped upside down, or right side up, more like. Jesus is the Messiah we've been waiting for. He's like, he is the one. And Paul calls him Lord and then obeys what he tells him to do, and God saves Paul right there. And Paul is converted. He rethinks everything in light of this king. He's converted into the kingdom of God ruled by this Jesus of Nazareth. And he's still Jewish. He never lets go of his Jewishness. In fact, at the end of his life, he's like, I'm, I'm still a Pharisee. I'm a Pharisee of Pharisees. Pharisees weren't automatically bad guys. They were a, they were a uh, political slash religious tribe within Israel that was waiting for Messiah. And Paul's like, I still am that guy. I just know he came. The Messiah's here. I am a fulfilled Pharisee now. This is Paul. And from this day on, Paul's converted as a Jesus follower. And, and here's something I want to bring home. And this is where this kind of lands in, in, in our room right now. Paul's conversion is an example for all of us, all of you. Because later on in 1 Corinthians, Paul says, as we're going to see, he says, imitate me as I imitate the Messiah. So in other words, what Jesus does for Paul is what Jesus wants for all of you. Starting with conversion. Starting with rethinking everything and coming into the kingdom. It doesn't matter what you've done in the past. Paul stinking killed Christians. It doesn't matter what you've done in the past. It doesn't matter where you are today. Jesus is presenting himself to you right now as you're in this room or listening on a podcast later, and the king is inviting you right now. Rethink your life in light of Jesus as king of the world. And the moment you pledge allegiance to Jesus and say yes to his goodness and authority, that's the moment you step into his kingdom of forgiveness and healing, and you become part of the family of God. Family of God. Just like any family. In the family of God, you join your imperfect self to other imperfect selves to form an imperfect community that through Jesus is journeying towards God's future and hope. This is the invitation to be converted. And the way we publicly come into this is through baptism. This is why the waters of baptism are open. This is what Paul did and every other person in the New Testament. Today's Baptism Sunday if you are yet to pledge allegiance to Jesus, maybe you've been a fan of Jesus for a long time and not quite a follower. I like what Bob Goff says. Maybe you've been a, a, a Jesus stalker, but not quite a follower. <laughs> like stalkers read a couple quotes and show up and peek from the back of a room once a week. But have you been a Jesus follower? Today's Baptism Sunday. No worries if you didn't bring a bathing suit. We'll give you a shirt. And, and, and seriously, we actually have, and, and, this, and this is San Diego where you have no excuse for weather. Uh, the waters of baptism are open. Come and step into the kingdom like Paul did. I and I want to emphasize one more thing about conversion. And this is really important that I often forget. I think we miss this a lot, myself included. James K.A. Smith said it this way. Conversion is not an arrival at our final destination 
It's the acquisition of a compass. Love that. In other words, life with God is a journey that begins with conversion, and there's tons of grace along the way. I don't know about you, sometimes we talk about like the day we became a Christian or our spiritual birthday or the day we got saved or whatever, and we talk about it like it's the day we finally got our act together and we stopped screwing up or whatever. Um, But that could not be further from the truth. Conversion is not the day we arrived at Christ-likeness and maturity. It's just the day we finally got a compass from Jesus. Paul's conversion is a very encouraging reminder of this. Because at the same moment Paul is converted, and here's a big point for today, at the same moment he's converted, he's also called. He's converted and gets a calling. Remember what Jesus said back in Acts 9. Remember what he said to Ananias about Paul. He said, this man is my chosen instrument to go to the Gentiles and the kings and the people of Israel. This is Paul's calling from God in a summary And this is the case with every single one of us. If you're a follower of Jesus, you are called to fulfill a unique mission with your unique voice. Nothing about your wiring is accidental. God wants to use your uniqueness and your voice and the very personality he's placed within your soul for his kingdom. And it's part of his calling on your life. There's a calling that's embedded within who you are as an image bearer of God. So let me ask you a question. What has Jesus called you to do? What is Jesus called? And and what are you doing to discern it? What are you doing to discern that calling now? For Paul, his unique mission was to be an apostle of Jesus Christ to the Gentiles, kings, and Jews. And in in a very real sense, apostle just means One sent on a mission, which includes all of us. Paul is a unique kind of apostle. None of us can write Bible anymore. Paul could do that. Uh, But we are all sent. Your uniqueness is sent into the world. And what does that look like? How does God want that to be realized? Because here's the thing, you guys. Paul didn't realize it right away. It took years of rejection and highs and lows and setbacks, setbacks that were covered by grace, but still a bummer. As it turns out, newly converted Paul was not transformed into the glorious apostle who wrote 1 Corinthians right away. In fact, he, he, he caused a ton of anxiety for the Christians in his day. Uh, Paul's premature enthusiasm to preach the gospel actually stirred up a bunch of tension to the point where Paul had to chill out for a dozen years back home. He had to just go home for 12 years. Look what happens when Paul leaves. Uh, Verse 30 of Acts 9. They took Paul down to Caesarea and sent him off to Tarsus. Then the church throughout Judea, Galilee, Samaria enjoyed a time of peace. (laughs) And and they were strengthened and they grew. Uh, They needed a break from baby Christian Paul or whatever. He was converted, but, but listen, he had not come into his calling. And, and this is deeply encouraging for us. How did Paul come into his calling? How do we come into our calling? How do we figure out how our personality and our giftings meet with God's truth and the gospel and where he has us living and the community he has us a part of? How does that all work? Thankfully, we see it. We see how in Paul's life. God's grace and the discernment of calling came to Paul through 
community, through community. Fast forward to chapter 11, we're not going to read it, but a dozen years later, while Paul's basically hanging out in silence, Barnabas comes to Paul and brings him back. Barnabas acts like a Christian brother and, and brings Paul back into the Jesus story, and they go to Antioch, where they basically start a church planter's training center, uh, which is this beaut- it becomes this beautiful headquarters for all the church plants that would go out. Um, and then watch what happens in chapter 13. So fast forward to chapter 13. Now in the church at Antioch, in this resourcing center that was growing under Paul and Barnabas's teaching now, there were prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, Lucius, Menean, and Saul. Verse 2, while they were worshiping, who's they? The church leaders community. The community of church leaders. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. So after they, who's they? The church leaders, correct. It's a community of church leaders. After they had fasted and prayed, they placed their hands on on them, Barnabas and Saul, and sent them off. Fascinating. Don't miss this. Paul and Barnabas are faithfully serving in their church, and then God moves them deeper into their calling. And how does God do that? Does God speak privately to Paul here? No. Is Paul by himself in a prayer closet, or Paul and Barnabas by themselves fasting and praying, and God suddenly, like, quote, lays it on their heart, and they have this burden by themselves? No. Up until this point, God has confirmed Paul's calling through other mature, spirit-filled, trustworthy people. First through Ananias, he will be my... God tells Ananias about Paul. Now the Spirit speaks to Paul's leaders about Paul. Listen, don't miss this. This is huge for us as leaders at this church, as Park Hill leaders, and for all of us, for all Christians everywhere. One of the ways God speaks authoritatively to help discern calling especially is through spiritual community. This is why it's so vital for Jesus followers to be committed and submitted to Christian community, not just a group of Christian friends, although that's great. You should have those, always but a committed family of Jesus followers with identified leaders who are also leaders that are submitted to community. In the New Testament, God consistently reveals his calling on individuals through their communities. This doesn't mean God doesn't speak to individuals. Of course he does. God speaks to all of us. But it simply means no healthy Christian can function as an island. So, Let's get practical. Here's how this looks on a structural level right here, Park Hill Church. Your leaders, Park Hill's leaders, are committed to, like, team, team leadership. I, Evan Wickham, am not the senior pastor of Park Hill Church. I'm not the senior pastor. We don't have that language. The best language we can come up with as a title for me is lead pastor. It's better than saying point pastor because no one says that because I serve as kind of a point person for the overall vision of the church. But honestly, my wife Sandy, she takes point on the vision as much or more than I do. That's how it ends up working out. So we wanted to also give her the title lead pastor. 
But since she doesn't feel called to public speaking, she forced us to settle on co-lead pastor as her title, for now. For now. And, and, and then Matt, personally, he serves as executive pastor by leading the staff, me included, in the week-to-week operations of financial decision-making all that. And then Aaliyah, who you heard give announcements with Matt, Aaliyah is pastor of community formation, where she's really the leadership touch point for all the community leaders that we value so much. And so then, the Persleys and the Wickhams get together for our monthly elders meetings, where we have another couple join us who are in candidacy to become elders. More on that in coming weeks. Uh, I'm, I'm, so I'm one of the elders. I also submit to the authority of the elders. I lead elder discussions. I can also be fired by the elders, which is real, would be really bad for me and really good for you, actually. If I go south... If I go south, you know who to call. If I tweet heresy, you know who to call. I am accountable to this. Uh, We even have a board of directors up in Portland that we elders submit to financially. And a church network in Portland, we lock arms with spiritually. And we, we gather up once a year at a determined location to pray. So the elders pray and make decisions together or not at all. Hear that? We are making decisions and praying together about stuff or not making decisions at all. That's how we work. So in theory, the elders could fast and pray and discern the voice of the Spirit and send Sandy and me to Cleveland to plant a church. This is the authority I submit to. Um, Please don't send me to Cleveland. (laughs) The point, here's the point. We long to to be a community that's led by a community that submits to community. Because the New Testament is not a story about a bunch of lone rangers. Sometimes we think of Paul as a lone ranger, like this unique rogue pioneer who's out running and gunning like a free-spirited anti-authoritarian millennial or something, or, or like some solo missionary, like some solo missionary who like feels called to plant a church by himself, steps out in faith apart from any spiritual covering or sending authority. And that's just not the picture we have in the scriptures. And I want to say this next part with like utmost respect. I want to say this next part with so much humility because I love how so many voices are doing beautiful, helpful kingdom work through like blogging and social media and all of that. But one thing I've increasingly noticed with blogs and YouTube and social networks, it's increasingly common to see Christian voices in the church who have zero responsibility or accountability to the church. So much, it's so common. It's incredible. It's actually historically unprecedented. For 1900 years, the only way to have authority in the church was to be completely accountable to the church. Men and women would get ordained as deacons, pastors, or priests, and if they started teaching heresy, you could call their local church and they're done. But in the last 20 years, this fascinating thing has happened, and some of it's good, it's not all bad. Uh, But the internet has opened up a world of opportunity for self-made spiritual gurus, like Lone Ranger Christian voices, who can say whatever they want and are only accountable to their Twitter followers, or maybe their publisher if they're lucky. And uh, I just want to say, the New Testament picture, that's completely foreign to the New Testament. It's the exact opposite. Paul's calling is confirmed through the prayers and fasting of his local church community as he submits and remains submitted 
to their authority as his leaders. And he's always working in a team, a team that his home church knows about. It's amazing and beautiful. Again, nothing against people that are inspired to write books and do blogs and all of that. Uh, But when there's not a covering, when there's no one to call if they go off the rails, that's nothing like the New Testament. Um, So this is how we Park Hill leaders are committed to functioning. Because this is how we believe. You have that next slide, slide 17, I believe it is. This is how we believe the New Testament calls all of us to function. Not as multi-church hopping, barely accountable Sunday consumers, but as fully committed, spiritually hungry travelers together on a journey, committed to helping one another discern the call of God on our lives. This is the example of the early church. It's the example of Paul. And listen, it might take another 12 years to discern the call of God in your life as you are lying low in faithful community. What if, it's, what if you're 53 before you figure it out? Guess what? You are in good company. <laughs> Look at Paul. Follow Paul's lead, and let's be content to commit to community. So after Paul and Barnabas are sent out by their leaders, you guys, from Acts 13, the next four chapters of Acts are church plant after church plant after amazing story and story after story. I encourage you to read Acts this year as a backdrop for 1 Corinthians. It'll just really, really enrich, I think, your experience of what we're doing on Sundays. Paul just begins to flourish. Things begin to happen. So many incredible things. But for our purposes, one of the most significant moments in Paul's life happens in a city called, guess what city? Corinth. Right, one of the most significant moments in Paul's life. So turn to Acts 18 as we start to land the plane and come to baptisms. Now keep in mind, up to this point, Paul had a strategy. His strategy was to come into a town as he would travel around and preach. He'd come into a town and he'd go straight for the Jewish synagogue first. And as soon as that stopped working he would then maybe go to the Gentiles. Okay, that was his strategy. But here in Corinth, there's a massive shift that's about to happen. I believe there's a massive shift here. So verse 1, chapter 18. After this, after what? After a ton of great stuff. Paul left Athens and went to Corinth. There he met a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, who'd recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla. Hey, Aquila and Priscilla were amazing More on them later. The ultimate male-female preaching, teaching, just marriage as a ministry right there. Incredible uh, story that we need to dig into at some point this year. And then fast forward, verse 4. Every Sabbath he reasoned in the synagogue trying to persuade Jews and Greeks. When Silas and Timothy came from Macedonia, Paul devoted himself to preaching. He he quit his tent-making job, full-time preaching. Testifying to the, to the who? So he's preaching to the Jews at this point. Verse 6, but when they opposed Paul and became abusive, he shook out his clothes in protest against them. Whatever that means. Cultural, weird thing there. Uh, and he says this, your blood be on your own heads. I am innocent of it. And what does he say next? From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. He makes this sweeping statement, from now on, 
I'm focusing on Gentiles. I, I, I don't think, I think we gloss over that and don't realize the power of what's happening here in this moment. In this moment, Paul is coming into alignment with God's initial calling. This is probably 20 years later. 20 years after he was blindsided by the Lord on the road to Damascus. And when Paul said he's my chosen instrument, first to Gentiles, then kings and Jews, finally, Paul's from now on, I'm prioritizing my calling to the Gentiles. And look what happens. God begins to move powerfully. Verse 7, then Paul left the synagogue and went next door to the house of Titius Justice, a worshiper of God, Crispus. Great name if you're having a kid. Crispus. The synagogue leader and his entire household believed in the Lord, and many of the Corinthians who heard Paul believed and were baptized. So basically, things are exploding, and this church is made up of Gentiles. This is super important. This church right here, Park Hill, Gentiles. I would venture to say that Paul's decision to suddenly shift to Gentile-focused gospel preaching has a lot to do with why most of us are here right now. We don't think about that. Um, but this is amazing. For the, most part, for the most part, all the churches up to now are majority Jewish, minority Gentile. But for the, Corinth is the first time you see it switched. Corinth becomes the first church that is majority Gentile with some Jews. And this will actually be really helpful to keep in mind as we interpret 1 Corinthians because we talk about how, like, evil and twisted and sexually deviant and bizarre Corinth was. We read the letter and we, we bag on Corinth. Um, but we keep in mind, the church in Corinth was mostly ex-pagans. Like, these weren't Jewish homeschoolers. These are like the public school kids, okay, uh, of, of Corinth, coming to Jesus in droves. And they were coming to Jesus in droves. And this is great. This is, before coming to Jesus, the Corinthians would worship through temple prostitution, so just normal, open worship with temple prostitutes. So when we get to all the sex stuff in 1 Corinthians 6, it's like, well, what do you think? Look what they're coming out of. Corinth was a greedy, wealthy, power-hungry, arrogant, sexually liberated city. And so much like San Diego, it's crazy, actually. And Paul goes to work in this pagan city. And God starts an incredible movement through an individual who's willing to step into God's calling on his life. And then finally, our final verse, look at verse 9. While Paul is here in this city, one night the Lord spoke to Paul in a vision. Do not be afraid. Keep on speaking. Do not be silent, for I am with you. And no one is going to attack and harm you because I have many people in this city. Love this moment. Many, I have many people in this city. I remember August 2017. Maybe you were there. Our prayer tour, five months before we planted Park Hill. I'm so curious. How many of you in this room were at our prayer tour five months before we planted Park Hill? Some of the teams, some of the, yeah, amazing, amazing. So we called everyone and anyone who wanted to be part of a church plant, to spend five days in a row with us covering San Diego in prayer. Each morning and evening, we met at a different landmark uh, and, we, and to seek God and pray for revival in our city at those places. 
I vividly remember praying together in a circle on top of Mount Soledad, looking over the coast and north past La Jolla and then east across the city and then down across the bay towards the high rises. And I remember this Bible verse beating in my head like a drum. Don't be afraid. Keep speaking. Don't be silent. I am with you. No one will harm you because I have many people in this city. And since then, you guys, it's been amazing to see how God is moving all over the place. All over the place. When the scales fall from your eyes and you, you see what God is doing, and there's no room for cynicism. So many partnerships in the city. So many. I think of just within our church, connections with Steps of Justice, doing incredible work with asylum seekers and refugees and Syrians and City Heights, and then Love Does Afghanistan right here, right in our same block through, through these people, through God's people in the city, you, we have been able to pool resources to build schools for people across the oceans, you guys. And, and I think of you know, young lives and the ministry to teen parents and generate hope in churches against trafficking, people that are right here that God has had in the city that have come together for the purpose of his mission tangibly. It's mind-blowing. And then we planted Neighbors Church, another church, Uh, that God has had in his heart for who knows how long. We want to see more church plants throughout the city. We want to see more older churches revitalized with a fresh vision for the gospel and fresh leadership to reach the broken places of San Diego. I don't know if you guys know Maker's Church. Incredible community. I love Derek. Love Derek Miller to pieces. He's amazing. And Derek Miller and Maker's Church partnered with North Park Baptist last year to merge a century-old Baptist church that was wondering what to do. How do we move forward in God's calling on our life in this city, in North Park? We're a historic, we're a historic church, and we want God to continue working here. Maker's Church got together with the leader of North Park Baptist, and they're like, hey, let's just make North Park Baptist Maker's Church. Let's just make them all Maker's Church. You guys step into the building for free, and uh, all of us will prayerfully support, and we'll be a multi-generational church for North Park. I'm like, come on. That's exactly. God has so many amazing people in this city. And then we have the week of prayer, seven. Last, last year we started seven, which is seven days of prayer and fasting in March during Lent. We're doing it again, March 22nd through 28th, where all seven days of the week we meet at a different church every day of the week to ask for more of God's presence and more of his mission to be realized through people who are willing to be in community and discern the call of God on their lives together. God has so many people in this city, you guys. It's crazy to be a part of what God is doing through his people in this city. So to wrap up, I just want to put up a paraphrase of that amazing James Smith quote because this is where it all started for Paul. Conversion is not an arrival, but a compass for the journey. Paul's whole story that brought him to Corinth and then later on, the, the, the drive that Paul had to then write a letter from Ephesus back to Corinth, the letter that we're studying all year. It started with a conversion where Jesus encountered Paul and Paul came under the authority of Jesus as king. And it took 20 years, we think, for Paul to finally start a stride of living in the fullness of the calling that God had on his life. 
So for some of us, this might look like actually being converted today. Be converted. Come in contact with Jesus. Admit your need of forgiveness. This is the first Sunday, listen, this is the first Sunday where we have not had anyone email ahead that they're going to be baptized. So we're rolling this tub out no matter what. Uh, We're doing it as part of our worship every month, every first Sunday of the month, just like we roll out the table no matter who eats and drinks. We roll out the pool no matter who gets dunked. So if you've never followed Jesus through that public profession of baptism, This is what the entire story of the New Testament has as an example of what we are called to do in response to the authority of Jesus in the community. So for others, for some, it's be baptized if you've never been. If you've never been baptized, the call is to be baptized in the presence of the family of God. And then number two, some of us here, maybe you've had, maybe you've had a conversion experience I think that's probably most of you. How many of you had a conversion experience? Like you became a Christian at a kind of a certain point. Interesting. I see hands ranging from here to here <laughs> to here to here. That's great. So maybe some of us here have, had it, have, have been converted. But for whatever reason... We are yet to align ourselves with God's calling on our lives through commitment to deep community. I've heard it put this way. It's not how how can I get more of God in my life. It's better how can I get more of my life into God. How can I come into alignment with what he has clearly called me to do? Be in community. Gather with the assembly of Christians. Pray, study scripture, practice the way of Jesus. How can I get more of my life into God? Not to earn God's favor, because I'm talking to Christians. I'm talking to Christians right now. Not to earn God's favor, but to come into a spirit-filled state where you are discerning God's calling with your community. Some of us here have maybe had a conversion experience or we point back to a day where we walk the aisle and pray to receive Jesus, but for whatever reason, we are yet to align ourselves with God's calling on our lives. And maybe that involves being baptized. You've never been still. God has many people in this city who need to see God's goodness through your unique voice, your unique calling. So the call today, as we kick off a brand new series in a brand new year, is to follow Paul's example in doing whatever it takes to come into alignment with the will of God. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for being being faithful to reveal your heart through Jesus. Thank you for promising to give your Holy Spirit to those who ask. We pray right now that you would be working in hearts. You'd be calling people like you called Paul. Calling people into a greater awareness of their need for you, their need for community, their need for the filling of the Holy Spirit and forgiveness. Lord Jesus, we want to see you 
work powerfully through your church. We want, to, we want to be available to whatever you desire. So I pray you just begin working in our hearts. Reveal to us the spaces that are not surrendered. Lord, may those be surrendered today. We open ourselves to you now.